Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Brett Byers, and I'm the communications manager at MLI, and I'm joined today by Sean Spear, Monk Senior Fellow at MLI and an author of a new paper just released by MLI. Sean, how are you today? Uh, great. Thanks for having me on the, on the podcast again, Brett. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you and your expertise. So um, would you mind just taking a moment to introduce this new paper to our listeners? Because I, I believe it's something that in the lead up to the election could be very, very interesting to a lot of people. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, let me start by telling two stories. Uh, about two economies. As we head into the election, the current government, the Liberal government, will talk about the strength of the Canadian economy. They'll point to positive uh, record on economic growth. Uh, they'll talk about um, strong employment figures. Uh, and they'll talk about solid uh, income growth numbers for the past couple of years. And that description of the economy will be correct. Uh, it's, it's factually based. The other parties will talk about a different economy. They'll talk about growing challenges in, in some parts of the country, for instance, in our oil producing provinces, which have seen sustained um, challenges in their labor markets. They'll point to challenges for Canadians who are being left behind in the transition to a knowledge-based economy. And they'll talk about concerns uh, with respect to income inequality and the bifurcation of labor market outcomes. And that description of the Canadian economy will be correct as well. Uh, it will be factually based, just as the first one is. And I, I think what we seek to do in this paper, and really I, I think an, an idea um, um, that is increasingly animating the McDonald Laurie Institute's work on domestic policy, particularly with respect to uh, the economy, the intersection between the economy and politics, what uh, Adam Smith and others used to call political economy, um, is that we've had a tendency, uh, and I include myself in this, to think about uh, the economy by only looking at the headline numbers, at the overall picture. Um, and in so doing, there's a risk that we've failed to see the second economy, the other economy, where certain people in certain places aren't participating in the economic activity or the economic growth um, that, uh, that is part of the first economy. And so uh, what we seek to do in this paper, which we've called Forgotten People in Forgotten Places, is to drill down into the headline data and try to better discern uh, where there are issues, where there are challenges, and so that we can ensure that our politics are more responsive, more representative, not just of uh, the people who are doing well in the first economy, but also uh, those who um, are facing challenges in the second one. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned two different bifurcations, so to speak, of people based on who they are and also where they are located. So let's let's dive into that. Who are these people who are experiencing Canadian economy B, so to speak, those who are uh, seemingly left behind or forgotten? Well, let's start with the people. Canada, as I said, has a positive record when it comes to the performance of our labor market. But if you drill down in those numbers, you can see divergent experiences. Most of the strength of Canada's labor market in the past 10 or 20 years has been the performance of women with post-secondary qualifications. They have, in relative terms, outperformed men with post-secondary qualifications, and particularly men and women without post-secondary. Uh, and you can only know that, you can only discern that if you get beyond the headline numbers and really try to understand what, what is embedded in those data. And on a whole range of metrics, most of Canada's strength for the past couple of decades has been driven and shaped by women with post-secondary qualifications. Just, just one example, 30 years ago, 
women with post-secondary qualifications underperformed in relative and absolute terms uh, men without post-secondary, without advanced degrees. In the ensuing 30 years, those numbers have flipped. Now women with post-secondary qualifications outperform men on, say, level of employment or, or their employment rate by about 10 percentage points. And so there's a great example of how drilling into the numbers enables us to better see who's performing well in the first economy that we talked about earlier and who may be uh, struggling or left behind in the second economy. Right. So that that covers a little bit of the people. So we see that women with post-secondary educations are doing better, certainly, than they were in the past. They're yes. responsible for a lot of uh, the positive numbers that Canada has been enjoying for the last 30 years. We see that those without post-secondary educations are not doing so well, particularly men on a relative basis are doing uh, much worse than they were previously. Yes. Now, how does this relate to places as well? So we have, if we have the understanding about who is being impacted, is there also an overlap in terms of where they're being impacted? Yeah, the short answer is yes. The longer answer is, and this again is a, a, a one of the risks of just uh, looking at the macro numbers. You know, think about it this way: when Statistics Canada releases the labor force survey uh, once a month, or it releases the economic growth data once a month. What do, what do the headlines, newspaper headlines, say? Canada increased employment by 20,000 or 40,000 or contracted employment by 20,000 or 40,000. But that doesn't really tell us very much, does it? We need to drill down and understand where is the economy growing, where is employment growing, and where is it contracting? And the truth is, place matters a whole lot. We've observed strong labor market performance in, in our major urban centers for the past several years, particularly Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, which have played a, a major role in Canada's uh, labor market health. But in other parts of the country, particularly rural and remote communities, when one looks at the labor market data, you find that, that, that these places are, are struggling. Uh, again, just one proof point. Um, since the recession, since the 2008-2009 recession, Rural communities have, have still not earned to pre-recession levels with respect to their employment rate. Right. Bigger centers, on the other hand, have not only recovered the jobs that were lost during the recession, um, they've gained another 15%. So in other words, all of the employment growth uh, for the past decade or so has been outside of our rural and remote communities. Yeah. And so... If you're thinking about the responsiveness of our politics, the responsiveness of our public policy, recognizing who is doing well and who is struggling, that seems to me is the first step in constructing an agenda that really speaks to the interests and needs of uh, those people and places who are most vulnerable in our economy. So, and, and I think your paper also turns on this point quite nicely to what happens if you don't address these problems. Canada has had a lot more runway, so to speak, than other countries because the natural resource economy, as you point out, has helped buoy up uh, individuals who might otherwise have been displaced when manufacturing jobs uh, or other types of employment flee. But we've, we've seen this story elsewhere. We've seen it in the United States in particular. Uh, listeners will appreciate the election of Donald Trump and how it seemed as though a proverbial silent majority or this forgotten America came, came out and supported him in states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, all places where a lot of manufacturing jobs were lost, a lot of individuals feeling like the economy was leaving them behind, particularly those who were without uh, post-secondary education. 
So what is the risk for Canada if we don't come up with a, a proper policy response? Do we have the same sort of uh, vulnerability to the populist politics that have uh, risen up in the United States, Europe, and elsewhere? There's a lot to unpack in that question. I'll try to be as, as succinct as I can. The, the first is when one looks at the characteristics or the determinants of Trump voters in the United States or um, Brexit voters in the UK, um, the most common characteristic is education level. Mm-hmm. A disproportionate number of people drawn to populist politics in these two instances are people without post-secondary qualifications. And that's kind of intuitive. Right. Uh, in the knowledge-based economy, we have a market that is paying higher and higher premiums for uh, educational attainment or cognitive skills and placing less and less value on other aptitudes and skills, including physical strength and technical background and so on. And so it's precisely the people without secondary qualifications who are most vulnerable uh, in the new knowledge-based economy. And so it's intuitive to me that for better or for worse, these were the types of people who were the most drawn to um, political disruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked a bit about the question of place and its role in contributing to popular, populist politics. There's a great uh, phrase that's increasingly used in, in understanding Mr. Trump's election. And, and the phrase is the revenge of places that didn't matter or don't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this idea that um, the political class in Washington on the left and the right fell victim to conceptualizing the economy through the lens of the overall picture, the headline data like we talked about earlier, and came to neglect that there were people in places for whom the economic data failed to paint an accurate picture of their experience. Mm-hmm. And so um, the, the people that we've been talking about and the places that we've been talking about are really core to understanding the rise of political populism in general and Mr. Trump's election in particular. And I think what our paper shows is that while our labor market is healthier than the United States, one example, there's a a chart in the paper that shows labor force participation amongst working age Canadians and working age Americans. And while we've seen um, some flatlining comes to labor force participation, particularly amongst working age men without post-secondary degrees. Our labor force participation rate is still much stronger than the United States. Mm. So I wouldn't want to sound alarmist. If anything, the point of the paper is to say we've managed to avoid the type of political disruption observed elsewhere, but the seeds for it to emerge in Canada seem to be present. Uh, and it seems to me there's an onus on the political class to avoid the mistakes that um, politicians and policymakers have made elsewhere and put the interests and concerns of vulnerable people and places closer to the policy agenda. And if I could just make one other point in this regard, uh, the paper emphasizes that a greater focus on the interests of vulnerable people and vulnerable places is a key insurance policy against uh, the rise of populism. And of course, I think that's true. But in hindsight, I wonder if that's too negative of a characterization. We shouldn't put their interests at the center of the agenda just to avoid populist politics. We should put it at the, at the center of the agenda because we live in a democracy, because our politics and our policy ought to be responsive and representative to the Canadian public in general and to those 
most vulnerable in particular. Um, Mr. Trudeau has, I think, rightly been credited for an emphasis on um, gender representation in his cabinet and within the governing caucus. Those are laudable steps, of course. But when we're thinking about the representativeness of our politics and the responsiveness of our policy, I would argue that the least representative group, the most neglected, is the share of the Canadian population without post-secondary qualifications. Mm -hmm. Just another factoid for listeners, the share of the working age population, age 25 to 64, without post-secondary education or post-secondary qualifications, amounts to 6.7 million Canadians. To put that in some context, it's the combined population of Manitoba, Alberta, Saskatchewan, or larger than the population of the Greater Toronto area. This is a major slice of the population, and one would think that our, our politics, that our policy ought to be responding to their interests or concerns. It would be like the equivalent of a prime minister saying, I'm just not going to care about Manitoba, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. I mean, that would understandably be a controversial observation. Um, and yet it, uh, it doesn't seem to be controversial that our political class across the spectrum, this isn't an observation about a particular politician, a particular party, it seems to me aren't doing enough to ensure that uh, those without post-secondary qualification are part of the policy debate, that are part of the political discourse, and hopefully our paper helps to galvanize greater interest in their needs and, and concerns. Yeah, and I think that's a very good point about this being a nonpartisan failure, so to speak, in terms of actually concretely addressing the needs of these individuals. There is actually a lot of um, responses to this. One is in the form of President Trump and, and what he represents and those who have supported him. At the same time, uh, you have others who are on the leftist spectrum who have non-market-based solutions for some of these problems, mm-hmm. free post-secondary education mm-hmm. as a means to which to develop people's skills and increase their uh, ability in the future uh, labor market. Or uh, candidates like Andrew Yang talk about the notion of a basic income. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are all these ideas coming from left of spectrum that are not uh, market in focus, but are rather government approach in focus. Um, unfortunately, those on the right are still wrestling, I think, with do we go down the path of President Trump? Do we go back to the sort of conservatism or right-leaning politics of yesteryear, which just put an emphasis on the market and just waiting for the market to do its job? Or is there perhaps another alternative? So if I could just get, first of all, your reflection on some of the left-leaning solutions that lean on redistribution and uh, government-oriented policies. And if I could also get your reactions to what a a free market response could look like in terms of public policy. Yeah, so again, I I agree uh, with the formulation of your question. Um, Let me just start by putting a a finer point on the nonpartisan nature of the paper and its assessment of Canada's labor market performance. Um, The trends that we're describing cover uh, approximately a 30-year period that obviously involve um, governments from across the spectrum. So we're not making observations about one government or one party. Right. These trends transcend um, transcend partisan politics. I was asked earlier today by a reporter if I thought one of the political parties in Canada or one of the sides of the ideological spectrum is better positioned to respond to the trends that we describe in the paper. I think the short answer presently is no, that obviously an agenda will ultimately draw on ideas from both sides of the spectrum. But it seems to me at present, neither side has quite figured it out. Mm-hmm. As you say, 
the left, broadly speaking, tends to look at these issues through the lens of redistribution. That is the idea that we can tax those who gain from the first economy that we talked about earlier and transfer that wealth to those who are stuck in the second economy. And how that redistribution takes shape is the matter of some debate. But at its core, that's ultimately how uh, these issues are perceived. And I think that's wrongheaded. I'm increasingly of the view um, that the people that we're describing in the paper aren't clamoring for more redistribution. They're not clamoring for uh, greater state dependence. They're looking to be productive, to to contribute to the economy. Mm -hmm. Think about it. Many of the voters who were drawn to President Trump through the American Rust Belt weren't asking for and guaranteeing a income, they were asking for him to reopen the coal mines. Yes. Um, they, they, they want to work and they're searching for politicians who can create the conditions for them to participate in the, in the labor market. And so uh, a response that is narrowly focused on redistribution, I think, risks missing the point. On the other hand, I think the right, as you say, is similarly struggling with um, the trends that we describe in the paper. On one hand, you have a reaffirmation of kind of pre-Trump economic thinking, which is an emphasis on a rising tide lifting all boats. And I think the evidence of the past 20 years or so is that that is an incomplete answer to these challenges. And then you have kind of Trumpian right, which at best, you know, is, is tinkering with different policy levers like trade and so on. And at worst is a incoherent mess. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're trying to do at the McDonald Laurier Institute uh, as part of this work is kind of twofold. The first is to try to get people to acknowledge the challenges that we're describing in the paper. Once we can agree on the state of Canada's labor market and where there are strengths and where there are weaknesses, then we can have a real debate yes. about what to do about it. The first challenge is to end the neglect and, and to try to get these issues closer to the, to the center of the agenda. The second part of our work, which will unfold in the coming weeks and months, is to try to map out what an agenda that that is rooted in the interests and the concerns of these forgotten people and forgotten places might entail. And maybe just to foreshadow some of our thinking, one area that we think requires more attention is our education system. Mm -hmm. So right now, we provide enormous public support for those who leave high school and enter post-secondary, support in the form of grants, um, loans, um, subsidized tuition rates, and so on. If someone leaves high school and chooses a different path, if he or she, for instance, uh, enters the labor force, we have virtually no support for them. The system really is biased in favor of a particular path. And I think we need to establish real alternative pathways for the percentage of the population that that isn't going to choose the post-secondary rate. And and just to to emphasize this point, Brett, even amongst our youngest cohort, the share without post-secondary qualifications is still more than 30%. Mm -hmm. In spite of all of the public support, in spite of the social pressure increasingly associated with um, choosing a post-secondary rate, in spite of all of that, still a fairly durable share of Canada's population is choosing a different path. And it seems to me Um, policymakers need to pay greater attention to this 30%. There are other areas that we think ought to be part of an agenda that focuses on the interests of the forgotten people and the forgotten places. Ensuring policy certainty in and around natural resource development, I think, is a big part of that um, because of the role 
that natural resource sector has played in providing employment opportunities for people without post-secondary qualifications, particularly men. And there are a whole host of other ways in which we think we can create the conditions for work and opportunity for all Canadians, irrespective of their back educational background or even where they live, that doesn't involve uh, redistribution or, or, or an uh, overemphasis on redistribution, and also doesn't involve uh, hostility to markets mm-hmm. or uh, central planning. There is a way to get at these issues that respects market forces that is rooted in people's demand for work and opportunity and can create a, a political environment ultimately where people can have confidence that our politics and policy are in, inclusive and egalitarian and in the interest of all Canadians, not just those who um, uh, live, work, and, and flourish in the first economy that we started off talking about today. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a good point that there's not one simple answer. I think that there's a temptation for some to say, if we just throw up trade tariffs, yes. we'll, we'll regain our manufacturing jobs. Fortunately, those jobs are probably not going to come back in the manner in which they were originally there. Or some might say, if we just do job retraining, we'll get people into new industries regardless of their current qualifications. But oftentimes, I think it's been observed that these, these programs fall short of expectation. Some would suggest you just push more people into... Uh, larger class sizes at universities, and somehow they'll all find jobs in the new economy. But as as you point out, lots of students still aren't going into them, and tons of students who are already there are poor served by yes. by their post secondary educations. So I think the point is well taken that there's not just an easy magic bullet solution to all of these problems. With all this kind of said, we've got a lot of different phenomenons going on right now. Brexit's coming up in just a couple months. We have the democratic race in the United States and the United States election coming up. It seems really soon, even though we're over a year out. And of course, the Canadian election is coming up very, very soon. With the Canadian election in mind, what would be your advice to not any particular political party, but to decision makers generally as they as they try to wrestle with these issues, um, as they try to include perhaps the forgotten people in forgotten places in Canada it's part of their agenda because no matter who who wins in October, the, the, this issue will have to be a, a, be addressed quite seriously. Yeah. So um, let me wrap up with just two observations. One about uh, electioneering and the interaction between what we've been describing and um, electoral politics, and then their second point about um, uh, this uh, re- these issues remaining animating concerns for the next government. On the first point. You know, there's a tendency in our politics to dissect the public into different categories mm-hmm. by looking at them through an electoral lens. Some listeners will be familiar with the lexicon of accessible voters and voter universe and and uh, these sorts of things. And I think part of the lesson from these other places that have experienced political disruption is that our political class needs to resist the temptation to slice the population up into different segments. I think people want to believe that, that our politicians really are um, determined to represent all Canadians. Uh, and that's not easy in a, in a big country with different regional views and so on. But I think it really behooves our political class to, 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 to try to advance a, an inclusive vision, uh, a vision that is rooted in disagreement. I'm not proposing that they hold hands and 
sing Kumbaya on stage. Uh, we, we want a debate. We, we want the campaign to be rooted in normative differences, freedom and equality, and so on. But at the core, it needs to be an agenda and a vision that isn't merely targeting major urban centers or knowledge-based workers or farmers or oil workers or bankers or so on. It really needs to be as inclusive as it can. And I, I hope we see that through the, through the campaign. On the question of uh, what happens after the campaign, I completely agree with your characterization. I would say, in, in my view, this question of uh, growing bifurcation, driven in large part by economic changes that, as you say, transcend public policy, is just about the most important political economy issue facing the country. We are going through this transition that I described earlier, where we have an economy that is growing in particular industries, in particular places that value certain skills and aptitudes. And it seems to me it's important that policymakers lean in to these challenges and ensure at the end um, that we come out of this process of transition in a way that is cohesive and ultimately one where people, no matter their backgrounds, no matter where they live, uh, have a reasonable shot at opportunity and prosperity. I don't think we can ask much more than that. But the first order of business is to understand the data, understand where there are challenges, and, and hopefully uh, the report uh, contributes in that way. Well, that's a great place to leave it off. Sean, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. These will be important issues in the, the coming days, weeks, months, and perhaps even years. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. 